Welcome everybody to the Institute for Government for this event on what the government can learn from COP26, which we're delighted to be hosting in collaboration with the Forum at Imperial College London. I'm Jill Rutter, I'm a senior fellow here at the Institute. So it's around six months since COP26 and five months or so until we get to COP27 in Sharm el-Sheikh and hand over the UK presidency to Egypt. But November 2021 seems really a long time ago. Uh, there was, of course, progress in Glasgow, but also a degree of frustration which kicked the ball forward and actually made COP27 more of an event than it might otherwise have been. But since then, the focus of discussion has been on energy security, the affordability crisis, and the global political agenda has radically changed with Russia's invasion of Ukraine. But equally, we've seen other trends, inflation reaching levels last seen, certainly in the UK, in the 1980s, but also increasing evidence of the impacts of climate change. And interestingly and intriguingly, in Australia, an election in which climate change seems to have changed the political weather, uh, finally. Anyway, so we're here today to look back and look forward. Now, interesting questions. Looking back six months, what were the lessons of Glasgow? Was it a success? Uh, could more have been done? How robust are some of the commitments that were made then? What do they mean for future progress? And have these other wider developments really made the case for net zero more compelling and spurred the world to take faster action or derailed it? So I'm joined by a panel, appropriate enough, half in the room, and half online. With me in the room, I'm delighted to introduce Professor Mary Ryan. Mary is Interim Vice Provost Research and Enterprise at Imperial College London, and Seppi Golzari Munro, Deputy Director at the Energy and Climate Intelligence Unit. And online, we have a pair of Borns. We have Camilla Bourne, Deputy Director of Strategy at the COP26 Unit in the Cabinet Office, and Greg Bourne, Joining us from Australia, he's a councillor at the Climate Council of Australia. Uh, Greg was just telling me before we joined in that the Climate Council was the crowdfunded response to the abolition of the government's official climate commission by the Abbott government, uh, climate commission created by the previous Labour government. So very interesting now that Australia has a Labour government again. So to you online and you in the room, Remember to post questions on Slido. Loads of time for questions. We're going to have a bit of a chit-chat between us. Upvote the questions you like, um, particularly if they're ones you wanted to ask yourself. Of course, the other person's not asked them as well as you would have done, but it enables me to see where the big topics of interest are. And frankly, I'll mangle all of them anyway. Um, if you're in the room, put your hand up when we get to questions. We'll be tweeting along at hashtag IFGNetZero join the conversation on Twitter. So I think that's all. Um, and I'm going to kick off with a question. Start off with Mary. Mary, you lead Imperial's transition to zero pollution initiative. So from outside, you know, do events like COP26 matter? Uh, or are they basically sort of mostly for show? Do they make a real difference to international efforts to protect the environment? So yes, so I would say yes, I do lead our transition to zero pollution mm. initiative, and, and 
the language of that is much more inclusive than thinking just about the climate crisis. So mm -hmm. I think putting that in framing, I think, is quite important mm -hmm. because it, it frames how we really need to have a broader systems-based approach to dealing with these intersecting environmental challenges. And I think we'll probably get on to things like biodiversity and food security and mm. a just transition, but those are all interlinked. And so that, that's part of our framing. And I think sometimes when you, you do need a mm. focus on CO2 and the climate in particular, but not to the exclusion of these other interlinking and um, synergistic effects. Mm. So there is a danger, I think, that everything gets put into a CO2 focus without thinking of the broader picture when you have something like the COP26 or the COPs. Mm. Having said that, I think they are critically important in focusing national and international activities. From an, from an academic perspective, I think it's really important that it, I guess it brings together a unified voice from the science perspective and I think has been critical in, I think, establishing science fact around the climate. I think these, these kind of global connections that are all saying the same thing is really important from a scientific perspective. So the other thing that, that it's done, and I think in the UK what, over the last year, is brought together the UK academic community. And, and so from Imperial Elisa Gilbert at our Grantham Institute for Climate Change coordinated a network of climate interested universities. So rather than having siloed small voices, it's allowed us as a community to have, I think, a more unified position to work better together. And I think to have a, I think that, I guess, corralling of voices is really mm -hmm. important. I also think it does help set kind of some of the ongoing questions. So, you know, in a university, mm -hmm. we want to answer questions. And, you know, at Imperial, our mission is, you know, excellence in research for the benefit of society, right? And this, you can't get more important mm. than this, right, in the current crisis, the current climate. And so I think unlocking some of those ongoing questions and how we might feed into helping address some of those issues, I think they're, they're, they're amplified in an event like the COP. So just, I'm just quite intrigued about you talking about the need to look more widely beyond CO2, because obviously we've got this parallel mm. UN process mm -hmm. about biodiversity. Mm -hmm. In your sort of dream world, mm -hmm. Mary, would the biodiversity and the climate change processes come together, or would that just be just too much to get your head around? I mean, Glasgow was already an enormous it's event. Would, we, would that just be this sort of ludicrously unmanageable yeah. event? Well, it would potentially be unmanageable, but in a dream world, it would be managed. Because I think if you, I mean, if you look back at the, you know, all the environmental tracking over the last 150 years, the, the industrialization and the production of CO2 mm. has gone in parallel with change mm. in land use, mm. right? And we see deforestation mm. contributing mm. to the climate crisis, mm. but also contributing to the biodiversity loss. So I think not recognizing fundamentally that they're linked is a mistake and potentially, and, and this is one of the, I think the big challenge is not to take actions that have unintended consequences mm. in one of these other arenas. Um, so I think there should, I, I would like there to be some alignment. And of course the emergent mm. chemical hazards is also mm. Mm. Part, and, part of this. And did you think Glasgow managed those tensions or did Glasgow exacerbate those tensions? I don't think it necessarily exacerbated them, but I don't think it addressed them head on. Okay, okay, I'm gonna, Let's just park mm. that there, mm. the need for a mm. bit of um, intersection mm -hmm. uh, as a challenge. Camilla, you were in the UK team. You were part of the team that brought us the COP, albeit a year late. Um, 
I just wonder what your sort of you know, takeaways, maybe personal takeaways were about what, what was necessary to make this happen from a government perspective and to what extent did it really live up to what you wanted to see happen in Glasgow? Well, I'll let you into a bit of an insight from, from my side, which is that this was my 10th COP. So I've seen COPs rise and fall. I've seen what happens after you've had a failed dress rehearsal in Copenhagen and then you were able to sort of pull it off in Paris. And then we came to the COP in Glasgow and we had to sort of reinvent the wheel again because the international climate process has spent more than 20 years coming up with a global deal. And now we had one and we had to deliver it. And that involved a little bit of reinvention, re-understanding of what the COP would look like and how it would operate, because it was much more about facilitating delivery. So there were a few things that if I was to give advice to another person who was hosting a, a COP going forward, there are a few pieces of advice I'd give them. The first would be, don't just respond to the official agenda. So the agendas for the COPs are set years in advance because decisions are taken about when processes will come to an end and decisions will be taken, but they might be decided three years out. And by the time you actually get to the time of the COP, actually things might have moved on. The science might have changed, the policy and political expectation might have changed, and certainly that was the case for our COP. We knew that if we just followed the, the technical agenda, which was quite dry, although very important for supporting the COP delivery, a lot of it was about the rules of doing the Paris Agreement properly, having the transparency we need to make sure that everyone is doing their, their fair bit. And then the second piece of advice I would give is to be presidential. So when you are a COP president, you are not your country. You are doing that as an act of public service. It's something you're doing for the world. It's something you're doing for the climate. And it's all about, for us anyway, it was all about being the custodians of the Paris Agreement. And that was the level of ambition that was set by the Paris Agreement. And we really tried to uphold that in terms of how we delivered the COP. And the third thing I'd say, which comes back to my point of the fact that the COP had to change, it did have to change, but there's a lot of people have been around the COP ecosystem for absolutely years and years and years. And so you have to do this fine balancing act of being really willing to break the mold, but at the same time, retaining the integrity of the existing mold. So push yourself, respond to that science and, and make sure that you're being presidential and don't just be constrained by the agenda. And we tried to pull that off. It, it was a challenge. But in my mind, I always find it curious to hear people when they say, you know, it wasn't as perhaps as effective or as um, ambitious or as successful as we could have thought. But to me, having spent 10 years working on it, it went far above and beyond our expectations. And even those we had set really high. So I was very happy. If not, it's not enough for the planet. We know that and you have to keep going with COPs. But unfortunately, that's the nature of these engagements. So um, just come on, I'm going to come to Seppi in a second. Um, last week at the Environment Audit Committee, Alok Sharma was giving evidence on the sort of update of where things were. So the Environment Audit Committee brought in a number of other select committee chairs. And his view seemed to be that actually Glasgow was, as you say, quite good on, on commitment. We're going to talk about the scope for raising ambition. Greg, I'm going to bring you in on that in a second. But um, we got that. But he was also emphasising that there were a lot of good words at Glasgow, but the key thing now was follow through into delivery. I just wondered what evidence you were seeing to date of momentum being maintained after Glasgow on actually converting those commitments. And some of those were sort of voluntary coalitions of perhaps a slightly more willing. Uh, are you seeing 
concrete things changing as a result six months out, or was it too early to say? Camilla. So it's a very interesting process to watch. Uh, the effective thing that, that COPs do is that they set a, a moment in time which turns the wheels of governments everywhere, not just governments, also many civil society and non-state active groups, if that's development banks or if that's business or investors, and it gets decisions across the line for that moment. You're right. Then it comes after that, okay, what are we going to do to deliver? And I think a lot of people, there's been some commentary that says the Russian-Ukraine crisis is distracting attention from climate change. But actually, because those decisions were taken, there are a lot more capacity that has been allocated if that's in a development bank or if that is in a government whose job it is now to take those things forward. So I would say we're at the point where, you know, the, the kind of troops are amassing and they're, they're starting to work through things. But it has been really encouraging to go and speak to different organizations. When you speak to their leadership, it's a kind of pulse where it comes back to the leadership, they're now thinking about it again, but that is informed by many people who are actually working on the actual deliverables. We still have a long way to go. These things don't happen overnight. It's a transition. But I have been really encouraged by the, the signs that I've seen from talking to a whole host of different institutions and governments. And Seppi, if we look you know, back and then forward, you know, do you think the COP was a you know, really, as Camilla said, really sort of, in a sense, overachieved objectives. And if you were the UK government looking forward, what do you expect to see the UK government as COP presidency doing over the next six months to deliver a bigger success maybe at Sharm el-Sheikh? Sure, so I'll take the first part of that question mm -hmm. uh, initially. Well, I think by and large, I agree with Camilla, the COP was a success. I think the fact that it focused minds on the 2020s where we really absolutely need to focus on emissions reductions. The fact that we're coming back in one year rather than in five years in order to increase ambition where necessary is absolutely critical given we are in the critical decade. And I'd really point to also the bilateral agreement with South Africa for 8.5 billion for a just transition uh, plan away from coal and to clean energy. And that was with the US, the UK and the EU. Uh, so I think, you know, there were some really fantastic steps forward. And of course, as Camilla says, you know, it's not, you know, it, it's not enough yet. There's a long way to go on climate finance. Uh, there's a long way to go on prioritizing adaptation. And frankly, there is a long way to go uh, for some countries' NDCs. Um, but to, to take the second part of the question in terms of what the UK government needs to do looking forward, I'll just turn that around and look at it from the other end of the telescope. If we think about what was it that made the UK government a credible, um, potent uh, president? It's, if you go back to 2019 when we got the presidency, you can identify four things. We were the first nation to pass, uh, the first major economy to pass net zero mm -hmm. into law. Uh, we were world leaders in offshore wind. We had put the commitment to phase out uh, coal. We'd actually gone from 40% coal for electricity generation just a decade ago to 2% in 2019 and ho hoping to phase it out by 2024. Mm -hmm. And we had shown that we can decouple decarbonisation from economic growth. Four things that made the UK an absolute leader and a clear uh, president uh, to lead countries for this very important COP. So taking that and saying, well, what needs to happen in the next six months? I mean, that really tells us a story. It tells us that maintaining leadership at home 
is absolutely critical for your legitimacy abroad and your legitimacy in being able uh, to drive other countries uh, and herd them uh, in, in as uh, you know, Camilla put it, a presidential manner. And so that's the first thing I say. The second thing is that you know, we know from the ODI that the UK is falling short of its fair share of climate finance. Uh, there'd be a really good example uh, in advance of the next COP to really up that uh, and show willing and, and show, lead by example. Um, I think the, the other thing, and this, this talks to the uh, changing context mm. that we've seen with the uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine and the um, incredible uh, you know, just energy security mm. just exploding mm. onto the agenda, is that we can see quite clearly uh, in statements from many governments across the world and the UK mm. and the EU that net zero, they see mm. net zero as a strategic investment in energy security, in national security. And that's been a really huge shift. What the UK could do in the next mm. six months is really shepherd, uh, you know, other countries, blocks such as the EU to say, okay, look, you've put together this fantastic mm. repowering mm. EU plan, which acknowledges that fossil fuels mm. have been used as a geopolitical tool. Mm. Why don't you turn that into an updated NDC? Richard Black, my colleague, has just written a fantastic piece about this in Climate Home today. Why don't you um, put that in, transform that into an NDC and show leadership, start putting that forward? The UK itself could update its NDC with better climate finance uh, commitments and put that forward. So those are the, the three things that I would, I would say that the UK could really do. Uh, to push forward in the next six months. So just to come back at you, Sefi, uh, you've said the UK in 2019 made all these good commitments. Just before the COP, we saw the publication mm. of the net zero strategy, mm. quite ambitious, albeit with some question marks and some mm -hmm. gaps. But if I look back over the last week, mm. I see the design of the energy profits levy mm -hmm. with a big incentive to increase UK oil and gas mm -hmm. extraction. I see a thing today saying let's run coal-fired power stations for a bit longer. So where do you think the UK is? Do you think we're moving forward in that leadership or are we in danger of regressing on that leadership and that credibility? So that if we go to the EU, if we go to other countries mm -hmm. that we're simultaneously saying your NDC wasn't nearly as ambitious mm -hmm. as ours, up your NDC and Alex Sharma last week was saying there hadn't been that much progress to date mm. on that but he hoped they'd all come in and sort of like you know rushed as we got towards Sharm El Sheikh. Uh, do you think the UK is losing that moral leadership? Has lost that moral leadership or is still in a sort of quite good position on moral leadership for the rest of the world? I mean it's a really interesting question and I think just for context we need to be aware of you know, how much soft power we really have, you know, regardless of whether we're COP presidents or not, that the, what the story we tell from this country uh, has repercussions and ripples all over the world. Our media uh, has, you know, reach all across the world. So it's really critical we do get that right. In terms of the two points that you made, I mean, yes, I think it's quite disappointing uh, to see this encouragement of um, fossil fuel investment. And I would say the only thing 
that you could justify that on the basis on which you could justify that is this point around energy security. If you were to say, okay, we need to displace this Russian gas, we need that in the UK, let's go. But that's not what's happening. It's a privatized market. It's the gas that is pumped is pumped all, you know, is sold all across mm. the world. Unless you put export controls or nationalize the, the industry, which I don't think anyone's proposing, then incentivizing that in a mature basin, such as the North Sea, uh, does not wash in terms of energy security. However, the point around extending the life of coal plants, um, I think that's a sensible move. You know, I think that, you know, we have got this phase out uh, date for 2024, but frankly, it makes absolute sense for the government to look at the capacity that we have, mm. you know, extending Hinkley mm. B for another 18 months, I would say big tick, if that's what we need to do to displace expensive gas, and having the coal generators as backup, yeah. I'd say it's very sensible. I'm going to go to Greg and I'll let everybody come in on all these topics. I want to get to climate finance, development, adaptation, loads and loads of things that we want to come back to. But Greg, one of the countries, despite being our Prime Minister's best friend, Scott Morrison didn't really deliver for him in Glasgow, only in a sort of relatively sort of, you know, grudging, grudging way. Um, what hopes from Australia now? We saw a very interesting election for those of us that were sort of up there and WhatsApping friends in Australia about what was going on. But, you know, was this a climate change election? Have things changed on climate change in Australia? Are you about to lead the charge with a dramatically improved NDC that others can then come in behind and you know, take the Australian veto off action on coal? Where, where is Australia going to be? I would say are sort of just getting over the hangover from the 21st um, election. Um, so that's the first thing. Second thing I'd say is, from an Australian point of view, um, Scott Morrison going to Glasgow was not notable whatsoever. You know, in a sense, pretty much all states and territories and all businesses had moved well beyond. And for the last two, three years, we have been talking about the federal government being irrelevant and um, you know, business needs to pivot in its own particular ways, and many, many um, businesses have pivoted. So let me first then say also, Glasgow, from from our point of view, not just the Climate Council, but from many others, was a, a great success. It was a drumbeat, an important, really, really important drumbeat sent around the world. And I think of other drumbeats of things like the IEA Net Zero report, which came out on May the 18th of, of last year, the IPCC reports which come out, all of those are drumbeats which actually send a message into business particularly, finance particularly, uh, and then in our particular case, our states and territories, and indeed our voting public, things need to move and they need to move forward and fast. So Glasgow was a success. The only other, I didn't go to Glasgow, but I did go to Copenhagen. And I know also that when you go to a, a COP like that, geopolitics gets in the way. And that was in this case, the rise of China, you know, the relative fall of America. That's geopolitics. So when we look at COPs, I now think of them all as what is the drumbeat? What is the signal it's sending to the people? So in Australia, um, this particular election uh, stands out for, you know, it is the climate election. You know, basically, 
that the people have spoken and have turfed out the Morrison government, brought in a Labour government. But what is absolutely fantastic is there are um, six uh, independents, um, incredibly impressive um, women who fought for climate, fought for integrity of government, and fought for you know a better voice for women. And that will come through in a big way. Uh, we will see a new NDC. Um, it'll almost certainly politically stick exactly at the Labour government's incoming figure of 43% um, reduction by, uh, by, tr by 2030. That compares with 26 to 28% under, um, uh, under SCOMO, our, uh, <laughs> our previous Prime Minister. Um, will it be upped? Um, I don't know. My guess is not at first, because capital P politically, um, um, Albanese has got to come in and stick with what he said as an incoming promise, 43% by 2030. But the pressure that is being felt within Australia and actually being driven a lot by business is to now move faster. So I think what you could say is going to the, another COP, um, you won't see the dragging anchor that we have been for the last sort of uh, decade, really. And oh, Gerg, are we going to see Australia change its relationship to coal? I and mean, we all remember Scott Morrison holding up that lump of coal. And but there were some sort of stories that uh, that Albanese was in a pretty similar position relationship. Labor wasn't that distant, but it was quite interesting as well as the teal independence that Queensland, which has suffered from that terrible flooding, actually you know, returned some green. MPs, which seem not a very Queensland thing to do. That might sound unfair, but maybe I've got Australian politics wrong. But uh. so, so I'll, I'll give you an interesting parallel from my point of view, having uh, worked at the policy in Downing Street, you know, quite a long time ago. But um, I, I always thought that people used to sort of blame Mrs. Thatcher for um, you know, shutting down the coal mines of Britain. But you could actually say that all previous prime ministers beforehand had not bitten the bullet at all. You know, it, it was one of those things that was an inevitability. I think Australia will see the, the change in the demise of coal as an inevitability put upon us by climate change. And very few prime ministers, and I don't think even this prime minister will actively say, we will shut down our coal exports. But businesses, are absolutely expecting um, border tax adjustments coming on. They are expecting the substitution uh, within the country by renewable energy storage, et cetera, et cetera. They're fully expecting that and driving it really rather fast. So will any prime minister um, in Australia um, say, we need to get rid of it completely? The trading, the international trade of coal, however, is something which is far better driven uh, by, by COPs, by the, by the science that comes out from IPCC, by the determination of net zero by 2050 that comes out of IEA. It's a huge task ahead of us, but I think it will be one of those things which we will see as it was done to us, thank goodness. So we don't have to rely on the Australian political class to make the difficult decisions uh, there. It's going to be going to be market forces and uh, 
economics working, if you like. I want to go on to some of the yeah, things. And just transi I would say, and just transitions. The key thing is just transitions. Well, I want to come on to, let's come on to just transitions. I think this is very interesting. So COP26 COP was in Glasgow, COP27 is, you could argue, a developing country COP, an African COP, it's in, it's in Egypt. Camilla, um, Alok Sharma at the uh, Environment Audit Committee last week and in his speech that he made was talking quite a lot about the need for two things that really address some of Africa's needs. One was the sort of marriage of development and decarbonisation, but sort of where, actually where did development fit in just transition? What does just transition look like for some of the poorest countries in Africa? And the second thing was the need to mobilise finance around adaptation as well as that, not least because Africa accounts for so few, such a small share of global emissions. I think his figure was 3%. Um, where do you see, where are you putting in your actions now? So what are we expecting to see the UK presidency actually doing to make sure that things are happening and take some momentum into COP27 on those issues? So perhaps first I'll speak to, to the adaptation point, partly because it always ends up being spoken to second, and I don't think that is appropriate. We do tend to, to focus on decarbonisation quite understandably. We are trying to limit our exposure to climate risk, but we also know that we have climate change baked in and we do need to up our game on, on adaptation. So what we, we are doing is, as we had done previously in the run-up to the COP, we are engaging a lot with different donor countries to talk about how we could work together to increase our adaptation finance and also talking to development banks about this. Canada and Germany produced a, a roadmap, a plan, which talked about um, how we would deliver on the 100 billion. And there will be forthcoming an update on that, which looks at how the progress we've made over the, the previous year. And as part of that now, we have this new goal that we were able to broker as part of the Glasgow negotiations of, of the doubling of adaptation finance. And I know this is something that both the negotiators, but also the COP president were really proud of achieving because it is a real signal that there is a recognition of that vulnerability and there is a real need to, to drive at that. It is difficult doing adaptation financing. Mitigation is further ahead. We know how to, to work with the private sector, to work with investors, to work with development banks and also domestic investments to, to make these things happen. Adaptation hasn't matured at the same rate. It's also much more geographically specific and we don't necessarily have the same innovation in the sector. Having said that, I can predict on a personal level that in 10 years we'll look back and, and see a very different kind of adaptation sector to, to what we see today, given it's going to be so fundamental to so many things that we build and, and we develop into, if that's a bridge or if that's the way that we build a school or if that's some kind of innovative approach to adaptation, which local private sectors in, in all parts of the world start to facilitate. And I think there's a huge potential there for the developing world for the maturing of their um, private sectors through innovation around adaptation. So that's the adaptation one. And then on some of the decarbonisation components, um, so the Just Energy Transition Partnership, which um, was referenced by CEPI before in South Africa, is one, of, um, one model that seems to be gathering a lot of attention and a lot of um, interest. And the idea with this is that it is it is a challenging transition and trying to do it in an orderly way means that you have to cover all the bases. You have to think, how do we make this economic? How do we make this just and socially 
permissible and how do we make this politically feasible as well. And that's something that the international community um, through the International Partners Group in the context of South Africa are trying to bring to bear um, some support in that coordination, which is, of course, led by the countries themselves. It is th it's their goals, what they want to do with their development models, with their futures, how they want to support their governments. And it is a very different world now. As I traveled around, I was advising the COP president last year. As I was traveling with him, I know most people were at home <laughs> during COVID times, um, but we were traveling and we would talk to ministers all across the world who really got it. They knew that the future of the modern and competitive economy was to go low carbon, was to go more resilient. And they understand that that's where business and investors want to go. And that's what the future looks like if you want to be a competitive economy. Okay, so you see that South African model being sort of extrapolated country by country, do you, to specific sort of energy future development for each developing country that needs to go on that and bringing in international, you know, development banks, international partners, or how? Do, what's the sort of model going forward? Multiple South Africans across the world, is that the vision? So there's a lot of appetites for it. And if you parallel, for example, to the fossil fuel industry, which has spent the last hundreds of years trying to, to be a model that's been exported all around the world, that has been a mixture of public and private money. It's been businesses and investors. It's been choices made by governments. And I guess you could say that we're sort of moving into a new world where instead of building your future on those set of assumptions, you build it on a low carbon one. So I think there will be some kind of unique um, packages for some countries or partnerships in, for, in some countries. And, you know, the Just Energy Transition Partnership in South Africa, it has the value of increasing or supporting an increase in their ambition, helping to facilitate South Africa's aims around increased ambition. It's catalytic. It focuses on the particular area that needs a surge of support and it has those justice elements. So I think we can see more of that happening. The G7 have been talking about this, G G20 countries have been talking about this, and it's definitely one to watch this year. But I do also think it will be a model that matures and becomes normalized through all sorts of different institutions. It may not be a specific partnership in every single place, but it can become and needs to become the norm of how we finance the future going forward. And Mary, where do you think we are on adaptation? I mean, do we know enough about what we need to do? I mean, it's... Hearing Camilla say that the, the lack of innovation in the adaptation space, and I think I think you're absolutely right there. And I think that there's there's two reasons for that. One is exactly what you just said. What what do we need to do? How do we understand properly mm. what adaptation needs to be? And that's mm. quite hard to think about when you're thinking about what the scenarios look mm. like for the various different you know challenges that we're mm. going to have with with climate change baked in. But I think one thing that I would say, and I think there's, there's, there's a, some important messages of the, that we've learned over the last few mm. years with the pandemic, mm. because we've done simultaneously mm. mitigation and behavior adaptation, at least, mm. through various research and policy in, in mm. initiatives. And people did do behavior change and that adapting to living in a slightly different world. We're now doing a, an online hybrid meeting, mm. right? And this is something that you know, three years ago would have been quite challenging to think was a a normal thing and people now it's now part of daily behavior and we did mitigation because we developed a vaccine very quickly and I think we need to I think in the next six months as in the presidency really understand that we can address things urgently I think there, the scale of climate finance needed mm. is 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 enormous but I think that innovation in adaptation is also a big opportunity right and countries that get that right have um, 
potential business opportunities, they've got better well-being for their own communities, um, they will be more stable societies. Right? So I think having that mitigation and adaptation as part of government strategy is critical wherever you are. I just wanted to touch a little bit on the, on the, um, the rather blunt tool that was announced last week in the, the fossil fuel investment. And, and Camilla and, and I think Seppi both said, we're in the critical decade, right? We are in the critical decade. And fossil fuel investments don't think five years or 10 years, they are 20 to 30 year investments. So what are we expecting that investment to look like? And how is that consistent with the transition that we know we need to make, right? So I think the thing that's most disappointing for me is partly the messaging that it sends, but partly the fact that it's a very blunt instrument and won't, won't really deliver what we need if it's to do with energy security and the immediate challenge in the geopolitics. Some people might say it's just deadweight costs, but that would be far Some people too, might say that. That would be far <coughs> too cynical. Mm. Um, Greg, I just, I'm going to come, if anyone in the audience has questions, please put up your hands. Greg, um, on this point about adaptation and innovation, uh, innovation, adaptation, I'm getting my shins the wrong way around. Is there much thinking about adaptation in Australia? Are you going to be, as a developed country, on the front line of extreme climate impacts? Uh, is this an area where we can look to Australia to establish a degree of leadership and innovation? Well, well, certainly if you look backwards, you can look at some very good followership, but not so much leadership. However, the recent bushfires that we had, you know, sort of two years ago, and then the floods we've been having this year, you know, very, very badly. Um, when you then look at them and analyse them, the, the insurance industry are basically saying, when you look at the figures, around about 3% monies are spent on building resilience, which is effectively adaptation, and 97% is being spent on repair. You know, it's a shocking um, statistic, you know, 3% and 97%. We're already seeing that probably some of the towns that have been flooded are going to actually have to be moved. So that is really significant adaptation. Um, and it's just coming home in a big, big, big way. We are absolutely seeing changes occurring in some of our agricultural areas where wheat belts will no longer be wheat belts and so on. So you have to start thinking about what will you do. Australia, of course, is looking out into the Pacific and has been for some time now, obviously for geopolitical reasons, looking a bit harder than it was. But a lot of the adaptation that needs to be done in the small island states is non-sexy adaptation. It's not building huge wind farms. It is building seawalls, things like that. But that whole thinking about adaptation is critical. And I would, I would actually split things into two parts. One is, if you like, human adaptation. In other words, we as people within the ecosystems within which we live. The ecosystems are so complex. They're such complex adaptive systems. We can't completely predict where they will go or how they will go. And we can't actually do much about what we've already baked into the system. So most of the adaptation we're thinking about is humans within the landscape that we've created. And therefore, that brings you straight back to this 97%, 3% split. That has got to change, and it's got to change very, very fast. Seppi, I just want to again come to the audience questions, but Seppi, I just want to ask you about the private finance and where you felt, whether you got any sense that this was being mobilised. And these are the absolute telephone numbers that the Chancellor and Mark Carney we're announcing in Glasgow, you know, not just your common garden billions, but trillions potentially waiting to be unleashed by private finance. 
but obviously concerns, and Alex Chalmers mentioned this last week, it concerns that some of that really is just a bit of a bunch of greenwashing and things like that. Do you get a sense that there really is this wall of cash about to come into genuine investments, whether in decarbonisation or adaptation, or uh, are those sort of trillions? Yeah, I mean, on that particular initiative, I think, you know, some people very close to, mm. to that even were, were, were incredibly uh, disappointed with it. Um, I think uh, Camilla was right that, you know, the UK did a great job in not just sticking to the formal agenda and having these really interesting and innovative partnerships outside of the negotiations. Um, but I have to say, you know, some of those were great successes, but I'd have to say that the, the private finance one was, was a real disappointment and just uh, felt much more like greenwashing. However, the reality is, uh, and some of the other speakers have pointed this out, that, you know, this is a new economy. The re reality of the economics of particularly mitigation, particularly renewable energy, is such that the private sector is flooding into those uh, types of investments. And, and frankly, you know, in, in some ways, the, 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 the policy needs to be sped up in order to allow the amount of uh, private finance that's really knocking down the door uh, <laughs> for these investments to, to really get in there. I think on the adaptation side, um, the, 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 you know, because what's something we haven't talked about in, in, mm. on the climate finance issue is the split between loans and grants because adaptation is much better disposed to grant financing than the uh, private financing where you will get you know return on investment in your wind farms because you've got you've got some electricity mm. to sell there's not really a clear model as far as i've seen uh, for that type of return on investment and adaptation. So, you know, that's that's a, a different ballgame. I'd say they're knocking down the door on renewables, and frankly, we just need to we need to uh, let that in. Uh, on adaptation, it's a different story. Okay. Camilla, did you want to come in on any of that? Or I'll just go to Tom in the audience. If anyone in the audience wants to ask questions, yeah, Tom and then maybe the lady behind you. Tom. I just had a, a question on middle-income countries, and you've talked about the, the South Africa deal, um, which seemed to be one of the kind of most exciting and, and innovative things to come out of COP26, and there's quite a lot of discussion about which countries might be the next to move on to. Countries like Indonesia were mentioned as, you know, very big economies where you could sort of seek to have some influence through similar types of deal. Um, I just wonder what you make of that six months on, how that looks, because obviously those are some of the countries that are getting really hammered by this energy price crisis, by food prices, um, all sorts of things going on. If you look at Sri Lanka and, and other countries that are really sort of hitting difficult times and just how those involved in putting together those deals should approach those countries and sort of seek to address the problems they're facing now as well as sort of something long term. Yeah. No, no you need to be... We need you to, we need you to take the microphone. Tom can hold it for you if you like. Uh, yes, my question is very simple. Uh, UK was in the forefront for uh, doing the COVID vaccine, and we said it to the world that we are the first and jabbed the population. So where are we going 
little bit lagging behind in this. So UK science, you think, is lagging a bit in, in this? Oh, that's a great question to ask. Mary, do you think the UK sort of, you know, led the way on the vaccines and lots of, you know, is the UK leading the way on climate-based, well, uh, science-based solutions well, and climate and adaptation and mitigation? I think, I think absolutely. I was at the Royal Institution just last week, and that's where, of course, Tintel did lots of his work on the greenhouse effects. Mm. So I think we've been leading the way in both explaining the climate and in developing, at least in our research base, a huge amount of knowledge, particularly mm. around um, the hydrogen and the battery economy, mm. work on turbines. So I think in terms of the science base, the UK is definitely one of the world leaders. In terms of implementing that, mm. perhaps we're not as forward as some of sort of countries. And, and, and this links, I think, to a lot of the challenges around the um, eco, partly the policy mm. dimension, but partly mm. the ecosystem in manufacture mm. at scale is, mm. is not really done in the UK. So how do you think about taking some of those things that come out of UK universities and properly enabling them, and, and research mm. hubs and you know, research institutes, how do you enable them to be operating at scale and to be then exported? And of course, the pharma industry is still one of the jewels, I think, of the UK mm. technology sector, mm. if you like. So it's still able to do that. And I think some of our other sectors need both policy direction and, and direct investment to enable that. So I'm, so I'm quite interested in building on that because obviously commercialization has always been a sort of bit of a weak link in the UK invention through mm -hmm. to taking things to market. Are you looking at the example of the way in which, you know, the UK government funded research into vaccines and then saw it through into, into commercialization, manufacturing and distribution as a sort of model for this? Well, is, I think yeah, we, is that I mean, what area you you're interested in? Uh, it is interesting and, and it's really interesting how you take things through to global commercialization, mm. right? And I think what you see happen mm. there was there was an established big industry player that did the manufacture, right? So I think there was an established mm. pathway that relied on a large corporate, right? Mm. And so if that's what you are relying mm. on for the other translation, then that, that can work, right? But you are looking at large energy companies to pick up those pieces, right? And so mm. how do you incentivize those companies, right? And so with AstraZeneca for the, for the UK vaccine, there were some very clear commitments by the UK government on risk sharing and and mm. and how that would be delivered at cost right so that which was mm. another important part of the uk position i think for vaccines was that we are doing something for the world right and that's not that's not the position here we're not talking about taking these technologies and enabling them at cost we're saying there's a big return on investment i think that's true mm. and that's and that's okay right there is mm. a big return on investment here but it's a very different dynamic um but i think it speaks to the the fact that it's not seen with quite the urgency Mm. Which, which it should be. Um, so then you've got to say, what, what, what could the government do to enable this translation and the pickup of technologies by these large corporates, mm. if that's the route? Mm. Or how would it enable manufacture? And of course, there's, you know, there's investment in battery manufacture mm. that's, that is taking place um, that kind of parallels the VMIC, which, which didn't end up manufacturing our vaccine, but mm. parallels that idea of investment. Mm. Um, but I think the ideas are there and the technologies are coming through. I mean, so mm -hmm. I'm at Imperial, so I'm allowed to talk about Series Power. I mean, Series Power was, you know, what, it's the biggest clean tech company yeah. in, in the UK for sure, and one of the biggest in the world. And that came out of a university space and it had, you know, seed fund investment and became independent. So it's doable, but it's a challenge to get to manufacture at scale currently in the UK. 
Because to what extent would that then being available at cost sort of start to answer Tom's question about mm -hmm. how you enable the transition in an acceptable way in some of these middle-income countries, which are, you know, being battered by the energy crisis, the f potential food crisis at the moment. Seppi, do you have a view on how you sort of actually make that, you know, whether it's many South Africans or whatever, how do we actually enable an acceptable transition for middle-income countries? Yeah, if I could just make one point, uh, mm -hmm. Professor, building on what Professor Ryan said. I mean, you know, you've hit on the fundamental problem mm. with the UK and an industrial strategy. Mm. Um, you know, we've had governments recently, you know, in the last, you know, four or five years, and, you know, a fellow here at Institute for Government, mm. Giles Wilkes, you know, working on <laughs> trying to, uh, you know, get the UK to unlock a credible industrial strategy. And politically, our mindset doesn't seem to really enable mm. that type of activity and it's mm. something that you know I've been looking into with respect mm. to Scotland mm. um, and you know how, how you know Scotland can not only decarbonize better but make sure that it uh, takes grasps the economic uh, opportunity mm. offered by this transition to net zero mm. we're just not very good at it and we need to sit down and really examine why uh, that's another question. I think on the, I mean, I think it's a really, really important question that Tom raises mm. about um, helping middle-income countries. And, you know, it, 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 the, the, if I do understand correctly, you know, I, I worked in, mm. um, in uh, the International Climate Division in, in DEC 10 years ago now. I can't believe it's been that long, mm. but anyway. Um, and, you know, at that time, there was always this tension about, you know, to what extent do we put this money into the middle-income countries rather than helping the least developed? Um, and that tension, from what I understand, I'd be interested in hearing mm. Camilla's views, mm. actually, on this. It, what, to what extent does that still exist and how does it manifest itself? Because that really, you know, when mm. you've got a finite pot, that's very difficult to navigate. Camilla? That's your cue to come in. <laughs> I think that's my cue, yeah. <laughs> How to navigate this finite pot. So, Camilla. So, it, it, it is an interesting one. And I think, as I said, things have changed because we have seen countries really see this in their national interest, not just acting on climate change, which I think has been internalised, perhaps not at the scale that we all should have done fast enough, but nonetheless, it has been internalised with agreements like the Paris Agreement, because it's it's a huge sort of plan for the for the next few decades. But I think that one of the things that is starting to shift really now is not just uh, an understanding that we just have to wait for this 100 billion to appear and then we'll be able to um, act on, on, on climate action, which perhaps in developing countries, some, not all, absolutely not all, were a little bit more cynical in that. Now there is a real recognition that this is what you do to be competitive. This is what you do to be modern. This is how you develop and grow your economies. And that means using domestic finance as well as the support of international finance. It's not just one or the other. These things need to come together to be as catalytic as possible. I think as well, the broader geopolitics, in some ways, yes, they absolutely have a short-term bite and they can be really challenging and it does absolutely cause some distraction for governments, quite understandably. And you know we've got to be realistic about that. But at the same time, in many ways, you could argue that at this current moment, climate security, energy security and hard security is very aligned. And actually, that's a very big impetus for moving in a more green and low carbon direction. It helps you to manage those prices. It is the the pathway forward that can can manage a lot of those tensions. So 
it's not easy to do these things. It is as important to make sure that you're doing them right as you think it's going to be quick fix projects that you deliver in a six month or even an 18 month turnaround. A lot of them, because they are about transitioning huge sectors of the economy and society are going to take, you know, 10, 15, 20 years, depending on the country. So we've got to manage those different push and pull factors to these challenges. But Climate change in and of itself is is sort of hypothetical. Climate change only matters as much as it affects something that we do care about, if that's our economies or our societies. And this is sort of climate change growing up. <laughs> it's not so black and white about exactly what is the right and wrong thing to do. It is really getting into the nitty gritty of these transitions. Similarly, I mean, you've said that there's this sort of, you know, beautiful, if you like, synergy between the sort of three securities. But if I'm a country that's sitting on relatively low cost, domestic, I'm a poor country, I'm sitting on a bunch of gas or coal that I could develop more cheaply than, you know, low carbon alternatives or importing. Um, and I'm a poor country and my priority is actually, I've got a growing population, my priority is to provide for my population, you know, food, etc, etc, etc. You know, is it, should really the sort of, you know, rich countries be saying actually you know sit on that gas don't use that gas not even as a transition technology until we've driven down the price you can't even use it to develop in the interim even though you really really not contributed to the climate crisis at all in any significant way is that the sort of message we're trying to give or have we got a more sophisticated message some of those some of those countries might be saying actually you know it might work for you these three things in parallel but it doesn't work for us well, thankfully, we're not just acting on climate change for the developed world. We're acting on climate change for all countries. So that does mean that we lead to a more sophisticated set of choices. I recognize that it is a challenging set of choices when you are a poor country and you're looking for that revenue. And I don't think we would be sort of tone deaf about that. But when it comes to coal, for example, it's simply uneconomic. It's not a safe investment to invest in new coal because we know that the private sector and others are rapidly moving away from it. When it comes to other fossil fuels, particularly gas, I think that the conversation is maturing and making those choices is becoming a little bit more evident. It's not entirely straightforward. But if you look at the IEA report, if you look at the latest science, investing in new infrastructure that's going to last 30, 40 years is likely to result, result in stranded assets. So because of that, those choices need to be informed by, by that understanding. And that is happening now. I know it is confusing sometimes that you see there is this need for replacement of oil and gas that that has um, come about because of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And there is a need to fulfill that in the short term. But if you look at, for example, the recent plans that are coming out of Europe and also the UK and elsewhere, the medium term is absolutely focused on low carbon. And so you have to take that sort of arc into account when you're thinking about new infrastructure build slightly different from just maximizing available resources as they already are. Seppi, did you want to come in on that? Just very quickly, I think that's covered most of the yeah. question. I would just re-emphasize that actually the, the choice maybe a few years ago was, you know, as you stated it, but say actually now the more economic choice, you know, the, the, is to go low carbon for, for many of these countries. And so the decisions sort of made for us. And actually it's the politics uh, that's standing mm. in the way. So that's that really needs to come to the fore because it, it really highlights why... Uh, sort of mischief making mm. and troublemaking by very tiny mm. minority of say MPs in this country 
uh, has such, it can have such a negative effect not only on us, but also uh, around the world, impacting the politics in, in these places when the economics are on, uh, clearly on the side of, of clean energy. So I just wanted to use our last five minutes to come to a rather different theme, which mm. was COP26, if you like, uh, was the sort of first big outing for global Britain, Britain as a sort of big actor on its own post-Brexit, mm. bringing the world together on an international stage. The UK had always been quite a big leader anyway in EU action on climate change and a big, big player, I think, in coordinating EU mm. contribution things like that. But I just want to go around the panel and ask whether they took lessons from COP26 about actually the way in which the UK should be doing foreign policy, the UK as a foreign policy actor in the future. I'm not sure whether Camilla will feel able to comment on this, but, uh, but anyway. Greg, looking on from Australia, did you think, yeah, actually, this is one of the areas where the UK is perhaps a more effective player on its own, able to carve its own path, form different alliances, not shackled by EU coordination. And actually, if that's the first outing of Global Britain, that's looking pretty good. Look, but the, the thing I think perhaps is most important is um, Britain having sort of moved into a can-do attitude rather than a can't-do attitude. You know, you, you were blown off course by you know, Brexit negotiations for a number of years, obviously. But that, you know, COP, as I said before, was a really, really important part of the speaking out. You've got six months of this presidency where some more sort of flights might be made, maybe even one down to Australia. But yeah, the way I, the way I look at it is this. You know, politicians have got to stand up and be counted. If others are standing up with them, that is incredibly helpful. So if you have, you know, that six months and your prime minister can get out and just still say, we can do this, we need to do this, I'll be with you, that I think becomes very, very important. We're all in this boat together. Um, and uh, look, if the boat is sinking, we would all better be bailing very, very quickly. But you have a chance to speak more, speak more. That's what I would say. Seppi, what do you reckon? I'd say two things. Not just on the impact of kind of Brexit on the UK, but... What was striking for me is noticing the impact of Brexit on the EU and the EU negotiators, because we were lucky enough that we had for 10 years, from 2008 to 2018, uh, the director of the International Climate Change Directorate, Peter Betts from DEC, who was also the EU's chief negotiator. Now, the, through him and the fantastic uh, team in DEC, we were able to influence European uh, climate policy and drive it forward. And I have to say, I mean, maybe I was a bit cheeky uh, back at the COP, but I did, I did say it was like a, EU seemed to have lost its mojo a little bit, having, having lost us. Um, <laughs> but anyway, um, that, that was, it was quite, really genuinely quite fascinating about the, the, the role or, or lack of that the EU played at the COP26 as a result, I'd say. Uh, from, from our side, I'd just go back to my opening comment, which was, uh, if we want to uh, continue to lead and be taken seriously on the international stage, we need to continue leading at home because that's what gave us the legitimacy, the credibility, uh, the potency to go out there and, and be presidential uh, on the world stage. Camilla, did it, 
You've said you were a veteran of 10 cops. <laughs> they don't look nearly old enough to be, but they are, <laughs> I suppose they are quite often. But anyway, uh, you've been to lots of cops. Did this cop feel, feel different? Was the UK able to strike different poses? Is Seppi right that actually the EU, in a sense, was a <laughs> loser from the loss of UK influence there? And maybe we need to re find a way of re mojoizing, is that a word, <laughs> the EU? Uh, anyway, what did you make of the COP as an outing for global Britain? Well, I won't dare to, to comment on the EU. I don't think that would be the best to start. Um, but on the, um, on the UK, I mean, we were a presidency, as I said, so I think it was quite a different dynamic in some ways. But I would um, echo the points that were made earlier by Seppi about the role that it had, that we had a really strong global hand in our own domestic policy that was really constructive. And also the fact that we engaged our, our Foreign and Commonwealth Development Office network very effectively to engage in country consistently with consistent messages. And I think that is the kind of model that, that is very effective. We've done it prior to Brexit. I hope we continue to do it post-Brexit, but it did serve us very well in moving it forward. And Mary, I just wanted to come to you at the end. The UK always claims that one feature of its presence in the global stage is going to be as, as a science superpower. Do you get the impression that in this area, climate, biodiversity, that entire nexus of issues, food that you were raising earlier, that the UK is positioning itself to be a science-based, evidence-based superpower on the international stage? And if not, what more does it need to do? Or what does it need to do to maintain that position? Well, I think I'm trying not to tie myself in knots here, but I think one, one of the key reasons that the UK is in a position to be a science superpower is the strong research networks and collaborations that we've had with Europe over the past 20, 30 years. And I think the, the potential loss of those networks is critical, actually, and, and a big issue. So the whole you know, finalizing horizon mm. is, is a key issue for us, I think, to continue to maintain, I think, our position in terms of attracting talent and having um, interactions. Continuing to recognize that, I'm um, saying so yes, we have all the foundations mm. in place, we have great science across all of those pieces. It's challenging to bring those um, different communities together because they are historically in, in mm. different disciplines. So the, the enabling interdisciplinarity, mm. true interdisciplinarity is a, both it's a challenge just to mobilize how you get that to work, but then how you fund it. I think the mm. funding mechanisms are not yet fully thought through for the government, how UKRI is gonna enable that to, to really deliver across the piece. And then I think really just recognizing that science is a global endeavor, right? And mm. how we maintain both scientific excellence through partnerships, mm. but scientific diplomacy, which is also, mm. which is a part of the climate, dealing with the climate crisis is how you do science diplomacy as well as political diplomacy. Okay, well, that's uh, an excellent place to end. Uh, lots of potential there. Uh, but lots of work to do and best of luck to Camilla for the run up to COP27 and keep at it and maybe re-mojoize the European <laughs> Union, she said, my new word. And thanks very much to everybody for listening online. Uh, thanks very, very much in particular to the audience who came here and above all to our excellent panel, Professor Mary Ryan, Seppi Gozari Monroe, Camilla Bourne and Greg Bourne. And Greg, you can now go to bed at midnight just after <laughs> in Australia. Thank you so much for joining us. And just Thank you. to say we're
doing some further events from Imper with Imperial. This is the first in a series. On June the 9th, uh, we're doing an event on the move to electric vehicles, one of the fascinating areas there. And then we've got more events to come on green skills and on modeling crises, including the climate crisis. So do watch out for that. We're also hoping to do a Data Bytes event, our very, very nerdy data sessions on a Wednesday evening uh, on climate data on July the 6th. So tune in for all of those. And remember, you can tell all your friends to watch and listen again on the IFG podcast or YouTube channel. So do all that. And thank you all very much for listening and attending. So thank you very much. Thank you.